<laughs> Good morning, Holy Spirit. Hey, he repented of his prosperity gospel, okay? Oh, my gosh. David, I I knew you were going to see. You know what's funny is when I brought those books back for because Brian asked me to go bring books back to fill the shelves, I went through all my charismatic stuff and thought I got rid of the trash, but apparently a few of them escaped. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast, brought to you by today's sponsor, Dwell Bible. Since launching in 2018, Dwell's mission has been to help Christians rediscover the ancient practice of listening to scripture through their beautiful digital experience. Dwell offers more than 20 handpicked voices across 11 translations, including the English Standard Version, New American Standard, NIV, International Children's Bible, and more. And now... Dwell has built a platform to help pastors and leaders keep their people rooted in God's word every day. You can invite your church with easy-to-use tools and share built-by-you scripture playlists and plans to encourage reflection on last Sunday's sermon or keep up with your church's Bible plan wherever they find themselves. Dwell offers a 30-day trial on all new accounts, and you can get started by going to dwellbible.com slash good or texting good to 39383. Again, that's dwellbible.com slash good or texting good to 39383. So excited to have Dwell on board as a partner. And I'm joined today by two of my favorite gentlemen in all the world, David Campbell and Chris Palmer. How are you guys? I'm doing good. Me and uh, David been hanging out in Franklin. He's in the other room at the moment, actually. So You guys are in the same house right now? Same house. <laughs> uh, been, uh, I, I, I was trying to convert David earlier to Arminianism, but uh, it has, <laughs> wasn't quite successful. He seems to know. He seems to actually believe what he believes, and and to know why, <laughs> and to know why actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of Nashville that's that's rubbing off on on David while he's there. That great Budweiser hat that he posted a photo of himself <laughs> wearing the other day, and. Uh, and, and David, um, I hear that you've been really diving into some some great theological works while, while you're there in the uh, in in the clubhouse. Would you mind maybe just bringing up some of Chris's material that he's uh, <laughs> that he's made on well, offer to you? You know, I just perused his library. <laughs> we have uh, an eschatological philosophy here. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's what's that one called? Revelation expounded. Revelation expounded. Revelation <coughs> more likely. David, read a, read like a read like a few sentences from that, please. <laughs> I, I don't think I could. You know, it's, I'm uh, sure I've highlighted something in there that, that gee, prompt no, you. There, it's high. Gee, it is highlighted. He's got the convergence down here. He's in the rapture and the tribulation. <coughs> That's Chris Palmer. But, you know, if you yeah. want to break and into some decent, good, heavy theology, here we have uh, Good Morning Holy Spirit by Benny Hinn. And oh, then we have yeah. some more stuff of uh, Derek Prince's <laughs> uh, various other. Uh, there's some stuff here that it wouldn't even be suitable uh, to promote on air or to discuss on air. No, uh, no. So, sometimes really, children listen to this really, podcast. It's so just we, as well. True. I do have it's something true. here by Derek Prince, actually. <laughs> And it's just as well because we really needed deliverance uh, in this room. 
of the shepherdy movement as well. The shepherdy movement too, I think. On the uh, well, that's all right. I I was uh, you know I was part of that, and uh, <laughs> and uh, a lot of it was very good. But the um, I do have to say, uh, Jake, that my wife is using the Dwell Bible app. And, uh, you know, you didn't ask me to say this, but she's really enjoying it. So uh, thank you to the folks at Dwell. I'm glad to hear that. And I myself have actually been using it. And um, regretfully, I don't think I've ever intentionally sat down and listened to scripture, you know, at least not in um, not an app format. And they have some playlists on there that are, you know, characterized by whatever you might be feeling in a, a given moment, everything from anxiety to anger or whatever. Um, and honestly, it's very effective to have the Bible read to you in a, yeah. in a, uh, in a, a soothing, you know, baritone voice is the, the voice I think that yeah. I chose and um, <laughs> can testify to the fact that I'm not even kidding. I w- literally was anxious one morning. I listened to it. I was like, I feel better. That was really nice. Um, so yeah, shout out to the folks as well. Thank you guys so much for sponsoring our show and we're stoked to have you aboard. So it's a new year. It's 2023. Um, and one thing that I thought would be helpful, we're going to get into a few different things, uh, today. Maybe we'll look at some toxic theology. We'll look at chapter five of the incarnation of God, that book we've been going through, which is probably one of my favorite chapters. Um, but before we get to that, I thought what could be helpful for people uh, over the next handful of weeks is to introduce a segment to the start of our show called How to Read Your Bible in 2023. And so I have the privilege of sitting down with a Bible scholar every single week. And today I'm joined also by Chris Palmer, um, who, you know, is, is still learning the ropes around the scriptures, but, <laughs> but you know... He- <laughs> But he know he knows a you know a handful of things. Well, you know he's been well trained, so I'm not sure why. <laughs> I set myself back. I set myself back a few years with those books. <laughs> um, so uh, I want to read to you all a passage, and for all of our community who are listening, uh, they don't know the passage. I'm just gonna I've picked one. I've started in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I'm gonna read a passage, and then I want to have a conversation together about. Uh, how can we help people in their Bible reading so that they're um, getting the most out of their time with God in the scriptures? Matthew chapter 10, I'm going to begin in verse 5. Just for a little bit of context, this is immediately following uh, Jesus calling the 12 disciples. Matthew 10 and verse 5 says, These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. 
And that concludes our reading. So for everybody listening, everyone watching on YouTube, David and Chris don't have any special knowledge. Neither one of them comprehend Greek. And so they're going to help us come at this uh, as all of us ordinary, everyday, average Christians would. There's your passage, boys. Chris, since you're our guest today, why don't we pass the baton over to you first? What questions yeah. would you first ask here? Yeah, so I think this would mean um, go to your local mall and do everything that that verse says without asking any. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> hey, listen, don't, if that's, don't wear if a this, belt. Don't wear shoes. <laughs> and if they tell but you no shoes, no shirt, no service, then yeah. shake off the, the, the dirt from your feet on the way out of the store. Totally. And if you happen on your way to see any lepers, make sure you <laughs> cleanse them. <laughs> so I, I think probably here, the way I'm thinking about it at the moment, and there's a lot of ways of getting at this. So I don't want these are just where my jumping off point would be is to consider that we're already in the 10th chapter of Matthew here. So, um, at this point, my questions would t- t- encourage people who are t- looking at this is to consider where are we at in the narrative. Why is this taking place? Why the interest? Why the interest suddenly in this chapter uh, between Jew and Gentile and Samaritans? I mean, there's apparently here a division of people here that Christ specifies: Jew, Gentile, and Samaritan, which is very important. And I'm I'm not supposed to have any prior knowledge at this point, but I will make you. You have the cursory knowledge of an average ordinary Christian. Okay, so I know I'm in chapter 10. I'm in, I'm in verse number five. I know Jesus has already selected his disciples and he's he's sending them out. So I want to know what's it with the Jews and what's it with the Gentiles that's going on here. If perhaps um, I've read forward in the New Testament and I know what's coming in the book of Acts already and I'm, I'm, I have read canonically, um, my thoughts are going to towards Jew-Gentile relationships, Samaritan relationships. So I think that's, that's pretty important at this point. Um, there's things in here I'm not going to understand uh, as an average person who doesn't have some sort of Bible dictionary. What is this whole business of shaking off your feet? So I would go through here and begin to one of the when I was a undergrad, one of the, the first way I actually learned how to study uh, is the, is the observation level. I would circle everything that I just don't understand, and that's mm-hmm. going to be a lot for most people. It's going to yeah. be a whole lot of stuff. So go through and circle any peculiarity. So that's what I'm doing. Do Gentile relationship, shaking the dust off your feet. Um, the kingdom of ooh. heaven has come near. Yeah. And yeah, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And I wouldn't suppose that I knew what that term actually meant right off the right. bat. He may right. bring a presupposition what that might mean. But I'd why also can't I bring you, any money? Why can't I bring money? Mm-hmm. Are there, what's the deal with that? Did Jesus have something against money? I wouldn't draw any assumptions. So, so start circling things that are curious, and maybe I could go looking for an answer somewhere. That's the, that's probably entry level way into this passage. Great. Let's pause there, David. Anything you want to say entering into the passage? Well, I'm putting myself back in how did I read this when I was a young Christian, and I think I read it uh, because this text made an impression on me. Uh, Jesus has taught, has spent a a fair amount of time teaching, investing, training, and so on. But now it's time to go out and do it, to do what he's called us to do. So to me, it's all about stepping out in faith. And the principle I took out of this as a young believer was you have to go in faith. 
you you don't take resources with you. Uh, if God tells you to do something, you don't wait until you've got a million dollars in the bank, until you've got your pension secured, and then you'll do something for God. You just do it. And we we planted uh, a couple churches on that basis without a dollar behind us. We just stepped out, trusted God. And five years ago, when we mm-hmm. stepped down from church leadership, we stepped out again into the kind of traveling ministry we're involved in now with very little money behind us and no pension um, or anything like that. So I tried to walk that way, and I, I'm aware of the fact that there are others of walk that way in a much deeper uh, manner than than I've done. But uh, to me, that's what it teaches, that you have to go. The details of it, you know, what what Jesus told the disciples to do is basically you, you stretch yourself beyond, um, you know, the kingdom of God is a matter of the, not of what is possible, but what is impossible. Uh, so you put yourself uh, in water, uh, you know, that's that you're over your head mm-hmm. and then you trust God. So I'm assuming that Jesus is always going, going to call me to be doing things that are beyond my ability to cope with. And he may not provide up front for me to do it, but I just have to be obedient. Mm-hmm. And the going out and doing of it, he's going to look after me. So that's how I've read that. Uh, Can I just pause really quick and just say how much I appreciate you resist being highbrowed. I love I uh, love that you just go straight for the, this is the obvious application of the text. And I love that. Well, David's more Pentecostal than I am, so. <laughs> well... I'm getting there. I'm learning. <laughs> so, so, David, I couldn't agree more with you that I think that that's the invitation here. W- one thing that I think could be helpful for uh, our community of people listening is how can we feel confident in arriving at that kind of conclusion? So when I look at a text like this, you know, the, the question that I want to ask is who is Matthew writing to? And what's his point and purpose of including this event in this gospel? Because obviously he's writing to some somebody and he's got a name here. He's got a purpose. Maybe the purpose is just to recount something that happened, but it's probably more along the lines of what you're describing, David, and that he wants to encourage this church community of faith towards some kind of behavior. So, so is, that a, is that a good question to ask is to pause and go, do, do we know Matthew's audience? Well, his audience is the church. I mean, he's writing, you know, scholars would say he's writing to a more Jewish uh, group of people. Um, but we're not supposed to know that in this high political discussion we're having. Um, you might find that after you've, you know, asked your questions and written down your observations, and then you go to a commentary or two. <laughs> I, I mean, I think the, the you know, and I, if I'm not mistaken, you know, this account appears in the other synoptic gospels as well, Luke, Luke and Mark. So uh, it's uh, it's just fundamental. I think um, uh, I remember back in the days of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the mid 90s in that move that we lived through. And um, after, you know, we spent a lot of time in these meetings, people were having a lot of inner healing being prayed for. And, and there was a lot of wonderful things happening. Uh, and, uh, and then we got to the point of saying, well, you know, now that God has, has restored a lot of people, 
and refresh them. It's time to go out and do, do the work, to take the love of God out to the community. And we lost a third of our church because people said, oh, no, it's all about me. You know, God wanting to endless altar calls and ministry and this type of thing. And no, see, and Jesus is saying that here, you know, I'll, I'll give you some of my time and I'll give you lots of blessing, but there's a point to it. You've got to take what I've given you and start giving it away because this isn't about you. This is, you know, the church exists for those that, that aren't yet part of it. The church at least partly exists, you know, for the sake of those who aren't yet part of it. And, uh, and it's a principle in God that if you've received the love of God, you need to give it away. So that, those are fundamental things that, that I think. But how um, can I know in reading this that that's a safe conclusion to arrive at? Well, because it's just, if you can't see it, you're blind. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is sending these people out. I mean, the thing well, is. Okay, well, let me ask the question this way. How do, I, how, do I know, how do I know that what Jesus is saying to the 12 has any application well, to me 2,000 years a, later? As a young Christian reading this, I had enough common sense to realize that I might not be equipped to go out and cast the demon out of the first person I saw. Like that's common sense. Um, but I'm starting on a journey. Maybe by the time I finish the journey, I'll see God do more through me than at the start of the journey. But the principle is you've got to go out, whatever it is God is calling you to do. I mean, he gave these guys a particular task, uh, a set of tasks, but whatever it is that God's given me to do, um, he's sending me out to do something and I better be obedient and I can't sit around waiting till all the security comes around me where there's no more faith involved in it. Uh, and I think where the church loses sight of faith, um, we're done. We're toast. Uh, we have to be able to step out in obedience. Obedience is faith. The Bible says. The Bible does say that. Chris. I think you're asking. So I am going to be highbrow because one of us, one of us has to do it. Okay, if, if we're not, we'll be. I'll do the highbrow answer. But I think maybe it's not that highbrow. We're, we go back to hermeneutics for a second. This is a question of how do how do charismatics and how do Pentecostals do hermeneutics? Because typically, Chris, uh, can you define the word hermeneutic? Your approach for making meaning from the text. What does the text? Uh, an exegete would an exegete would decide what. Does the text mean? And from there, a hermeneutic can decide what do we do with the meaning of the text. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a little bit of exegesis, a little bit of hermeneutic. So we, we know the text means something. Um, a lot of books you read in, in circles where there's they're not charismatic, they're, they have a low pneumatology. They believe in the operation of the spirit, but you know, there's, it's a little bit lower than where charismatic would be at. Just to translate to anybody who doesn't understand what Chris just said, he's saying that some people would have a, a low view of the Holy Spirit, which is what pneumatology is in reference to, the study of the Holy Spirit, a low view of his role in our daily lives and here without would probably consider Who would probably say people like me, who I'm saying I'm, I'm normalized, would say I'm hyper. I have a right. hyper pneumatology, but right. we'll get it. I suppose that's like this conversation we have to park right now and just assume just yep. because I'm here that I'm right. Uh, but that the... <laughs> I'm sorry. I was hanging out with David and his wife today. I'm, I'm a little beside myself. But you you read some of these you read some of these critical books on making meaning from scripture. Okay, 
and you find out that their approach is original intent. Find out what the author's point of view was and just be done with it and, and talk about what the original intent is. If that's the case, then the author is writing to uh, the church, like David said, and he's talking about Jesus's commission to 12 people. Well, at that point, you kind of get stuck because you're like, well, he's not writing to me. He's writing. He, he's he's not talking. Jesus is not talking to me. He's talking to the 12 disciples, but he's writing to the church. So then you have to determine for what point is Matthew writing to the church? Is this supposed to be prescriptive so that everybody sees these disciples going out and say, hey, I can do the same thing. But then you have to deal with, if you say yes, then you have to deal with the parts of, well, you see John the Baptist baptizing people in the Jordan. Do I go baptize people in the Jordan? You see Jesus later on and say, John, he's raising Lazarus from the dead. Should I go to every funeral and, and raise Lazarus from the dead? So now I have to make a determination on what is prescriptive and what is not prescriptive. And that's sort of where there's a lot of disagreement. What a Pentecostal might say or a charismatic might say, um, and I can't speak for all charismatics, but I can speak for where there's some work being done in Pentecostal circles is after you get to the place of critical hermeneutics, determining the meaning, at what point does the spirit come in and work in a text that we believe is living and that, and, and that we believe is breathing to us to inspire meaning for us and, and, and speak to us from this text that, Hey, and, and that is, that is, and I'll speak for the Pentecostals here. That's where the Pentecostals have taken the book of Acts differently over time that people who've done critical hermeneutics will there say well they will say that these stories in, in the book of acts that they are our stories they belong to us this is the church and it's not it is a prescription for how we are supposed to go out and do the work of god and do the work of ministry so it is it is indeed prescriptive for us that's been troublesome i think at some points because then we assume that Miracles are supposed to be in our lives every single day when the book of Acts has been written over a period of 30 years. And, and, and that's where you kind of have to hash it out. But a person who believes in the work of the Spirit in their lives would say that we don't just read the text, but the text also reads us. And the text shows us um, who we are in relation to Scripture and what my specific role is in the Scripture and, and how I fit into all of this, both my church, my place in life, who I am, my origin, my identity, and what I'm doing in God's plan of redemption. And so I think there has to be that flexibility when you read Scripture to understand that. Otherwise, it becomes simply a historical document that we can pontificate and talk over and that we don't have place in. But if you allow that, but because the Holy Spirit um, is still at work. I think we have. I think we have liberty to to allow the Holy Spirit to show us how we have a place in this in the 21st century, and that is a conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is not often talked about in a critical, rational take on making meaning of Scripture or classical classical hermeneutics, perhaps from a uh, what I would say is a, a low. Pneumatology. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think so, the word that uh, you're describing. Oh, go ahead, David. Well, I'm just going back to right from you know the beginning when I was a young believer before I was studying any theology. Um, I always had the viewpoint or the understanding that the Bible was not a book like any other book; that it was actually a book through which God was speaking to me, 
And um, so uh, when I read a passage like you just quoted, for instance, then I ask, well, Lord, what are you speaking to me through it? Mm -hmm. And I always asked the Lord to take my daily Bible reading and to uh, use it to, to guide me in whatever I was going to do that day, or maybe to speak to me at the end of the day, because I read it the morning and the evening, it, it, it speak to me concerning what had happened. And I used to keep diaries. I used to buy these little diaries and write out the references, the number of times, the hundreds and hundreds of times that things happened to me that were then directly addressed in my Bible reading that night. Um, I remember the day, I, I don't want to d uh, digress, but I remember the day that, that my dad died, which was uh, about um, uh, 15 or 16 years ago now. And uh, so, I mean, I've been a believer for a long time. Uh, and when we're in the hospital room, I got there too late. My brothers, my mother were there. My dad had gone and they went and I just wept and I kissed him on the head. And, uh, and, and I, I went home and I opened my Bible and this was just my, my reading for that night was the, at the last chapter of Genesis. And it starts off after the death of Jacob, where it says, Joseph wept over his father and he bent over and kissed him. And what are the odds? What are the odds that that would have been my verse? But see, my whole life, and that's why, you know, my whole life I've had experiences like that. It's not there's been a continuous, you know, set of experiences like that. But um, that's always been the case. It's been a characteristic of my relationship with the Word of God. So I feel the Holy Spirit speaks through the Bible, and not in a way that, you know, uh, takes the Bible out of context or makes it mean. Uh, something it doesn't mean. It's just um, it applies the 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 principle or the story or whatever it is to my life. My, my dad used to say one interpretation, but many applications, and it applies mm -hmm. the scripture to my life. So when I read this, the account from Matthew just read, you know, I've always taken that from being a young Christian to being the fact that God will will require me at some point and can probably continually to go out in faith and do things that, mm -hmm. you know, and I never, never sort of occurred to me that it would have to be casting demons out or healing people or whatever. It's just that God would require me to do things that were beyond my capacity. And so, uh, I've always, I feel that, um, you know, the world of academic theology, my biggest fear in being involved in it was that I would lose that sense of intimacy where the Holy Spirit sp spoke to me through the word of God and where the word of God became more like a, a textbook. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, God saved me from that. Be uh, I mean, uh, my prayer is God, please continually save me from that because the word of God is living and active sharper than any two edged sword and God powerfully uses it to address me. Mm -hmm. So that's a very basic, um, but I have to say one more thing in response to what Chris said uh, in relation to the book of Acts. Um, I did have a power, very powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit as a young Christian, uh, which um, revolutionized my life in many ways. 
Uh, and uh, I remember going and reading. I had read the book of Acts many times, but after I had this encounter with the Holy Spirit, I started the very next time, you know, my because I read a lot of chapters every day. So not too long, it rolled around. I was in the book of Acts again. Man, I felt like I never saw that before. Yep. I never saw that before. It was like I was reading almost not a different book, but I was reading things and saying, seeing things in there. Like, how did I miss this? You know, so I do think that's part of the Holy Spirit giving us illumination. Yeah, and and I think that 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 what David is talking about is usually missing that piece of hermeneutics. If since we've defined what that word is, I'm going to keep using it. That piece of hermeneutics is usually missing from the discussions in a lot of seminary textbooks. It's not there. Seminary textbooks tell you this is how you find out the meaning, and it always comes back to authorial text, whatever. Okay, whatever their method is, but that part is missing, and. Then people had this encounter with the spirit or the spirit starts to guide their reading as we're calling it. And then they're like, am I being faithful to what I learned in Bible college? Am I being faithful to reading scripture? Well, I think both of them are really important. Like to, to me, if you're, I, I do think it is right to ask the question, what does the text say before you ask the question, what is God saying to me through it? I think yeah, that those two have to go hand in hand with one that, another. And a, and, a, and a Pentecostal scholar will come back to you and say to you, how do you know your method for what yeah. the text says is correct? I know. That's that's the thing. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And so yeah. that's that's how they're getting their foot into the door. Isn't that making you think like we can't make meaning like a, a total po- postmodernist would say? But they're throwing it back in the face of critical scholars saying, let's say you approach the text with, and you're trying to get the authorial intent, they'll ask you, okay, so let's say you are guaranteed authorial intent on 1 Corinthians whatever, 16. Mm-hmm. Why are there 32 different interpretations by people on 1 Corinthians 16? Can you actually get there? And and they're not, yes, they do believe you can understand authorial intent. But what they're saying is, why are we having these conversations about what, what you're making, you're, you're producing so much history about a text. You know, some of these volumes that have so much historical context in them. It's like, there's no way the hearers at that time heard all of this or understood all of this, the possibility of understanding that. But yet we're not having conversations centered around the possibility, even the possibility of the Holy Spirit speaking to us from the text, because we don't want to get into this, what they would call subjectivism, which it's not, because we serve a living God who speaks to us prophetically from the scriptures. And I was reading a um, journal article, academic article, and David read this. I don't think we read everything on this article, but there was a point where he was saying, hey, he got his PhD from this major university. He was a scholar, but then he has this encounter with the spirit. He starts, he, he, he can't read the text the same. He's seeing things that critical scholarship could have never shown him. And the way he described it is at that point, it was no longer me reading the text, but it was the text breaking open my heart, busting open the depth of my soul and speaking to me about things in my life, giving me answers. And it was actually reading me versus it was no longer me reading the text of the text, reading me and speaking to me prophetically. And, and I would push and say that needs to be made part of the hermeneutics discussion more than mm-hmm. it has been in the past because it happens to so many people. Well, uh, you know, and I'd like to point out the Pentecostals don't have a monopoly on this kind of revelation because when he was writing his commentary on Second Corinthians three, where you know the the um, understanding of the truth is veiled, 
to the Jews uh, who can't understand what the law means because they don't have the Holy Spirit. Uh, John Calvin said, uh, unless you have a revelation from the Holy Ghost, you will not understand the word of God. And so I think it's fundamental uh, that, that the, we have uh, a moving, a working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's my concern about the academic theology. And even within uh, an academic setting, I was in a, a very fine evangelical seminary at one stage and I began to get, get, get concerned that there was a lack of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was only in me. Maybe it, it wasn't anybody else. Maybe it was just me that had the problem. But it was affecting my walk with the Lord and, I was and, my, and my attitude towards Scripture. I was beginning to look at it more like a, you know, a, a, a textbook that, that my goal, the tr goal of my training was going to be to understand it and expound it better than anybody else. Um, but without reference to the Holy Spirit, you know, and, and, and I, I fled. I thought, I can't take this. I, and I left um, and made a switch. I really appreciated the time I had there. But for me, I felt I needed to be in a different environment. I went back into a, a, a more liberal environment where I had to fight for my faith. But I was more reliant on the Holy Spirit and uh, I've I've always just felt that in in my heart, and uh, I've always encouraged people as a pastor, um, you know, first of all, to be disciplined in the reading of the Word of God every day, and secondly, to ask and expect God to speak to you through the Scriptures. And of course, one of the downfalls in the charismatic world, as we know, is people that come up with loopy uh, ideas, and God said A, B, C, and D to me. And they're not rooted in a biblical reality because, mm -hmm. you know, and I think God will speak to you in direct proportion to your understanding of the scriptures. I'm not saying that God can't speak to new Christians because God spoke to me as a new Christian. I'm just saying that if you set your heart against and are undisciplined and not reading the word, do not expect God to speak into your life. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think, Yes, I I can't see how um, you can read. Sure, there are examples in the scriptures where um, at the at the end of all of your study and your your searching, you're still going to come up with several different possibilities of what the authorial intent was of of the passage. But would you not say though that that is more exception than rule? Is there not also uh, great clarity that is possible in much of the Bible? Uh, certainly, here in a passage like this, where I can look and go. I think I think the persecutious. Well, so so when he says, you know, um, don't take any gold or silver or copper, uh, no bag, no extra shirt, no sandals or staff, and then Jesus gives a, an explanation: He's, for for the worker is worth his keep. So so even Jesus in his own explanation to the disciples here in this moment is, is telling them why uh, he's sending them out the way that he's sending them. Now, if I have, if I've read the Bible enough, and, and this is, I think, a you know, the person who's reading this, if they're someone who's regularly reading the Bible, they don't have any special training. They're still going to have come across 
you know, other verses in the New Testament, like Paul and Timothy, where he's talking about how uh, teachers are worthy of their honor, and that's a financial thing. So I, I've got to, I, I can understand, you know, enough things to go, okay, this is what Jesus seems to be saying. And then I can make an application from that based upon knowing that Matthew is talking to persecuted Christians, you know, living in a society that's not friendly to their faith. Um, and then I can do something like what David's arriving at in terms of, well, this is clearly an invitation to walk by faith and that God's going to provide for you. But at least my way for getting there is is somewhat sound. And it re- did require me to to get at some authorial intent type stuff. It wasn't just Holy Spirit show me the meaning. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, I, I'm all for I'm all for the possibility of authorial intent and getting as close as we can to authorial intent. I mean, that's the way I, I do hermeneutics to decide what is being written, what being said. Um, but here's one of the questions that you do have to wrestle with. If that's absolutely necessary to understanding the passage, okay, is, is using historical commentaries or historical sources to reach it, are we saying the word of God on its own or the scriptures on its own is insufficient? But I didn't have to use a commentary to get that. But you said that there are certain things behind it that you had to use to get to authorial intent. Only if, pointing. If you, if you don't have to, if 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 you're saying you didn't have to use commentaries, then we agree on it. Mm-hmm. But if you're saying that there, that we that we always have to depend on commentaries to, or there's to to fully understand, I mean, there's there's parts of scripture. Um, uh, what, what what my thing is is that if you didn't have a commentary, mm-hmm. I think there's enough clarity in scripture to lead you to Jesus and to lead you to Christ. Because yep. otherwise, we're saying I think we're agreeing on the same thing. Yep. Uh, what we're saying is that. The scripture on its own is insufficient. And that that to me, to where I'm standing out of my tradition, is far too modernistic uh, to think that way. It's too critical. I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to have to believe that somebody else has to decode through critical methodologies the scripture to me. And I think we agree on that. I think that's we're both saying the same thing. Yep. Right. There is a yeah. great uh, to your point, there's a great amount of clarity in scripture that we can all decide on. I wonder too if, you know, even whether it's, you know, through commentary or through oral teaching, I wonder if the Holy Spirit presides over the transfer of of knowledge and information about the text over the generations. Well, of course he does. I mean, that's part of the whole thing. There's not, there's not an opposition between me sitting, reading my Bible and gaining an understanding from God through the spirit of what the Bible says. There's not a, it's not that that's opposed to me you know, going to hear what going to say, let's say calling up Chris and saying, well, Chris, what do you think this, this verse means or this passage means, or me going to church on Sunday morning and listening to someone expound it. I mean, our job, uh, our job as Bible teachers is to pass on the wisdom of, that the Holy Spirit has deposited within the church. We don't have anything new. We're, we're always just borrowing off of, you know, we have a rich 2000 year deposit and we're sharing with each other, but our goal obviously is to, is to equip and facilitate each person that's listening to us because they're the only ones that can live out their walk with God. In the end, they have to come to a conviction of what God is speaking through the word to them mm-hmm. uh, so that they can live it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in a, in a strictly spirit led 
uh, approach. How do you test, Chris, against a, uh, an application or an understanding of a text that yeah. is wrong? So, okay, so a Pente- I'll, I'll, I don't, I can't speak for everybody on this, but I can tell you that the, the Pentecostals have a triad for doing hermeneutics. That's mm-hmm. spirit, word, and then community, the community aspect of it. Mm-hmm. That that we read texts um, within a community. So it's not an individual that gets to decide what a text means, but it's technically you might not be comfortable with this word. I think it's, I think initially the word is probably uncomfortable to a lot of people who are doing critical exegesis. Um, but is, is the word, what is the, to negotiate the meaning out of a text? Okay. Not to say that scripture is negotiable, but it is to say that I think that's what we do when we do, when we're doing exegesis is we're sitting around discussing the possibility of what a text might mean. And we have all negotiated the meaning of a text, not, that what we decide is correct, it could be wrong, but by and large, a, a, a community is deciding what a text means. So Romans nine in, in the reform community, they've discussed on what this text means based upon um, their tradition. And uh, the Arminians have decided what this text means based upon their tradition. So I would say that they've negotiated the meaning of text and both sides would claim, would claim to be correct. But you're seeing what I'm trying to make is not who's right and who's wrong in this, but to see that, yeah, you're following tradition to negotiate the meaning, and you're, you're following community to negotiate the meaning, as right or as wrong as that community is going to be. Mm-hmm. My thing is that if you're going to do it, we all do it that way, is to do our best to develop discerning communities where things were rogue, um, wrong understandings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wrong understandings can actually thrive. If you're creating a healthy community as a pastor where good readings of Scripture are, are are being promoted, and you have that healthy interpreting community, which I think is prophetic, by the way. What, what I think qualifies a, a good reading? Well, see, I mean that's that's coming back. That's a question I don't think I'm going to put a period on right now. Uh, we we have, I think that's something we have to talk about. What what qualifies a good reading of scripture? I think that you you could say, well, it doesn't contradict the Bible. Well, I mean, the, the the question that you're asking is, what is the Bible saying? I think we have to go by tradition. Okay, I'm I'm a traditionalist. I think that. What what sort you go back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But also, are we within? Are we within the the parameters and the bounds of our tradition? Right. What qualifies a good Pentecostal reading of the text? Well, Pentecostals are going to talk about. They're going to use words like the the spirit baptism or the move of. We language things in, in certain ways. I mean, what qualifies a good Reformed reading of Scripture? Mm-hmm. And from that point of view, I'm able to say. Um, no, this is not. This isn't following our tradition. We're, let's. We're, we're a Pentecostal community, and let's put. This is just doesn't gel with us. But see, but then there's problems with that because look what happens when, look at what happened to um, Robert Menzies, who comes out just a few months ago. Me and David were talking about this, and he's like, "Yeah, um, the raptures. Yeah, it's not. It's not." So I actually have his book right here, the book End of History, which, by the way, I have a gripe with these types of books because, like. This is a great book on Revelation, but why does it have to look like all the other bad books on Revelation? And it's truly, it's truly a good one. Um, he takes the amillennial point of view because he believes that's the most faithful reading of Scripture. And his Pentecostal community, which is the Assemblies of God, boot him, take away his credentials. Why isn't China? So I heard. So uh, it gets back to um, I think a good reading of Scripture would be one that is loosely, more or less, within the, the realm of our tradition. So in our tradition is. Um, but doesn't his example the, prove that wrong? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I mean, I think that I think that uh, you, 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 that's the AG. But 
the AD doesn't rep all, represent all of Pentecostalism. I mean, you have the Church of God that may not have a problem with it, or you have some uh, Pentecostal groups that are not not so much dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is not a lock, stock, and barrel stamp of Pentecostal readings. Hmm. I mean, if if he is kicked out, I, they didn't brand him a heretic and say that your reading is heretical, mm-hmm. but they said, "Hey, we you have to conform to these to these mm-hmm. rules, uh, to these points of doctrine to be part of the assemblies of God." Well, he's not. They didn't say you're a heretic for. It. They just said, mm-hmm. "Hey, just not." It's probably best you don't carry AG credentials. What do you make, Chris, of, you know, uh, the uh, now deceased late great Gordon Fee was a Pentecostal scholar and he wasn't uh, doing Pentecostal, but he, but Pentecostals will tell you he -hmm. wasn't doing Pentecostal hermeneutics though. Right. So what do you, in this, this conversation that's rabbit trailed severely, but I'm here for it. But he's like, you just said, he's, he's doing something very different to what you're describing. Yep. You know, what's the name of his book? Uh, how to read the Bible. Uh, so so you have how to read the Bible for all it's worth part one and part two, which um, I think is, we use it. We use it at our seminary for it. I think it's, it's a great book, but he, this is, if you look at say uh, John Christopher Thomas's critique of, of Craig Keener, who wrote the book spirit hermeneutics, which I felt was like the next step on how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Craig Keener is trying to decide, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, Craig Keener is basically saying, Hey, just do, just do critical exegesis. And then maybe, Maybe let the Holy Spirit have a little bit more room than he's supposed to. But he's not talking about reading scripture within a community, which is something we all do, mm-hmm. right? It's something we all do. I think. Um, uh, what do you sorry, mean by reading to... a scripture within a community? Okay, like, so be specific you're... about that. Okay, so if I come to your church uh, or a church, is it safe to say that the people in that church are all reading scripture pretty much more or less the same way? And that's why they're there. Uh, yeah, I would say that that's a safe assumption for sure. Yeah, yeah we, have so a, that's, that's, we have a generally agreed upon a, approach, or they're they're looking for a teacher so to help it, guide so them. So when you're reading, so when you're reading, it, so you're at your church and you're reading it, and let's say you 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 say a certain passage, say you get up and say and you read Romans nine, mm-hmm. um, and and you expound it from a free will point of view. All the people and and most of the people there who are familiar with you are going to say Amen. Mm-hmm. Which if you did that in a reform uh, community, the people might say, "See you later." Mm-hmm. So the community is you're reading within that community, and the community is actually telling you at that point what's an appropriate reading of scripture and what's not an appropriate reading of scripture. You see, that's the point where they need me to come in to bring a correction. Exactly. But I like to, <laughs> this. This is a, what what you've raised is is a very uh, biblical concept, Chris, because Paul says to Timothy, continue in what you've learned uh, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the scriptures. Mm-hmm. See, so the assumption is you know the scriptures and you know trustworthy people mm-hmm. who have been a spiritual mother or father in your life and have taught you. And uh, I think that, um, you know, what we, what we try to do in terms of the ch- local church, the elders of the church, are supposed to be passing on the truth of God as best they understand it out of a matrix or a framework of years of faithful, godly following of Christ and whatever they've been taught. And yeah, um, no church is perfect. No church is perfect doctrine. You might, you know, slip over into a church that's Arminian or something, but you know, they still love them. <laughs> okay. And, uh, but I think fundamentally, it's a you're in a pretty safe place 
if you're following godly people. And all, all my life, I try to do that, to attach myself to men of God who are leaders who, you know, I felt I could be discipled by, uh, either sort of personally discipled or even maybe only discipled by their, their teaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think then we begin to grow uh, because God begins to move through the spirit as, you know, we teach one another uh, and uh, as we pass on the legacy as we pass on what we've learned to another generation. I think these are all really important things. And it's, we talk about community. Um, that's part of what the church is supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and not just in terms of the Sunday Bible teaching, but in terms of, you know, you're sitting with a, a mature believer and you're asking for help with your marriage or your finances or something. And they're sitting explaining to you biblical principles or this is how we did it and this is how god met us and you're learning mm -hmm. and i and i think that we'll never reach perfection but we really can reach maturity that that's what we want to present everyone maturing christ colossians 1 and 28 and and paul says he strives with all the energy that christ puts within him to present everyone maturing christ mm -hmm. Yeah. We want to do the best job. I'm just can. glad that we can understand what Paul meant when he talked about presenting people mature in Christ. We can understand. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I think we, so, do. Okay. We, we do. We we want you know people like us to be produced. So. <laughs> you know, when, when we talk about when we talk about reading scripture within a community, I think um, David raises an awesome point to this about being part of a matrix. The com good communities uh, are. are didn't just form overnight. I mean, mm -hmm. they've, it, it's been passed down. It's, it's tradition that's been handed along, and that's how we know. Let's say in let's say in a um, and I I bring up Pentecostals because I, I just don't want to speak for anybody else except for what I'm maybe given to speaking to. You come into a, a, a an Assemblies of God church or a Church of God church, and you have somebody who claims the same doctrines as you, but then starts to expound differently in a way that. Okay, yeah, do they believe in tongues? Yeah, they, yeah, we believe in all the same things, but it's just a very strange way of reading scripture and and coming at it and saying this is what Paul meant. It's just just oddball stuff. Well, if the community is discerning, he's going to say what he's going to say, but the hearts of the people aren't going to receive it. In other words, they're going to reject his reading of the text. What I think is helpful because it's like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't. You're saying it means that, but no. And I think that's part of. Part of how when you when you look in the New Testament, I mean, if you come to Acts 15, you and this isn't just the Pentecostal thing. Michael Spiegel, who we had on the podcast down in DTS, writes a really good book, and it's very simple to understand. It's called a Practical Primer on Theological Method. And now he's a DTS, he's an exegetical guy, and Glenn Kreider was also the co-wrote that book with him, and they talk about Acts 15 and all the different people that come together to solve this crisis in that book to make a decision about what this Old Testament text says. And what he points out at the very beginning of that book, it's not one voice that gets up and says, this is what it means. It's a council of people who are familiar and, and have walked in the way of Jesus or have followed Christ and have followed Jesus, who are part of the church community. And it's not one person specifically who's sitting there doing historical grammatical exegesis of the Old Testament to determine how do we handle what this says, we're going to take the Old Testament scripture and come together. And then you see the Holy Spirit active in that process of trying to determine what that means. And so it's not like scripture just means anything. That's not what we're saying. That would be postmodernism and probably postmodernism to the extreme. But what this means is that, hey, 
there is a process that it seems like in Acts 15, if this is prescriptive, that we come together like David's talking about as the elders. And we're like, hey, we have this guy in our community. He's saying this. Let's mm-hmm. come together, the elders, and let's make a determination with the help of the Spirit and with the wisdom that's been passed down from tradition mm-hmm. and from following Jesus. That this guy, there's there's wiggle room in here to make different applications and illustrations. But this guy's out of his mind. It's, mm-hmm. It will reject it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and fair. Some, yeah. Mm-hmm. We have too many... Uh, you know, going back to the scripture there, you know, the scriptures and those from whom you learned it. Uh, and I know it's my one misgiving in uh, being involved in an online teaching platform is I don't want it to take away from the authority of the elders of any local church. We, My wife and I travel in many local churches, including Jake's, for instance, where he graciously receives us. And uh and, and, and across a variety, uh, a spectrum of, of practice over different things, although fundamentally, you know, be- believing are all very orthodox in terms of doctrine. Uh, but um, we always submit to the local authority that's in place. And I feel that this is what, and that's why I say, I mean, I feel that in this online, or even what we're doing now in this moment as in an online sense, we earn our stripes by having been leaders or elders in a local church, and we're still committed to the local church. That's very, very important. Um, and because we don't want people to be running after somebody that's on the Internet, we don't know what their life is like. We don't know what their doctrine, you know, they may have three wives or they may be in financial sin or some other problem. Uh, who are they? You know, like you do you know people. Do you know these people? Um that's a really big thing for me. And I think that I think that the local church needs a restoration of the doctrine of eldership. It really does. Uh, we need more elders uh, in local churches who are guardians yep. of not not only just of, of doctrine, but who are living godly lives. Mothers and fathers. We need mothers and fathers in God. Uh, you know, we, I, I just that's just a cry of my heart, really. And I mean, so, think- yes. Well, think about, I mean, with the idea of elders in, in a reading community, if the, the, the general points of clarity are usually not the ones that we, we, we try to negotiate and discuss. Mm-hmm. It's usually the ones, I mean, for instance, I was grading a Greek one paper yesterday and, I, and they're translating John chapter one as John one or first John one, where it says from the foundation of the world. And she, she took it foundation. No, actually, I think she took it overthrow. But then it's I'm like I'm interested in why you should pick the overflow versus foundation. Because there's a there is a exegetical issue over that. And for as many commentators as there is, there's there's differences of opinions there. Or how a genitive uh, Paul and the faith this is the whole anti right debate. Paul and the faithfulness of God. Is is it through faith in God or is it through the faithfulness of God? Which sub, it comes down to David would how you use a genitive. Is it a subjective genitive or is it is it an objective genitive? Mm-hmm. And given that one thing, you have two schools that go this way. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is where, again, grammatical approaches of that are trying to claim authorial intent, I think, fail or are not sufficient enough to get us to a point where it's like, hey, we have to bring in eldership here to make a determination on this. Because what if it was just one scholar in every church making decisions about right. everything? And that's what happened in Acts 15, the yeah. eldership. It says the apostles and elders, the apostles were still there in, in that day, but 
Uh, interestingly, the final voice in the discussion in, in Acts chapter 15 belonged to James, who was actually appearing to act on behalf of the eldership, mm-hmm. which, which leads me to the observation that the eldership is the highest form of government in the church, not any other, you know. Um, but anyway, I mean, yes, absolutely. And, and, and that's precisely any yep. movement. We do need people who are trained. Absolutely. That's the five. God gave some to the apostles, pastors, yeah, and prophets, teachers. We need teachers within the body of Christ. They don't have to be, you know, um, high level teachers in every church, but we need some in every movement to keep things on track. Whereas these specialized issues come up. And that's precisely, and that whole eldership to back it up, that's precisely what the criticism is for Bibles that are not true translations. They're, for instance, the Passion Translation, the biggest criticism is this wasn't done with a, an eldership, a diverse mm-hmm. eldership. Uh, it was done by one guy. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. the biggest, you I know said, what I mean? It's not even a translation. Please, yeah, don't, not, use, please don't, don't use it, you know? Yeah, or the Council of Nicaea. They're not sponsoring us, are they, Jake? No. No, yeah, the con- and they the never council- will. <laughs> and the Council of Nicaea, they have to fix a problem. Well, Constantine calls all the bishops together and, I mean, uh, and gets them all together and says, hey, solve this problem. They did, he didn't just call up Gregory of Nyssa, say. He called them all up and said, fix this. And it was a, it was a diverse community of people who were going to come after this problem. So, again, I think we make theological decisions um, from, from the time of the council and from time of Acts 15 to all the way to the council of Nicaea, I think that is prescriptional for how we're supposed to engage the text within our, and, and this probably is the problem with Facebook uh, preachers and TikTokers and, and, and online platforms is that you have people making these exegetical decisions and they're the, they're the lone ranger shaking out the meaning. I don't think that's good. Yes. Except to say that because of the, the breadth of Christian history, m- most of the time a responsible person is never going to be acting as a lone ranger if they are consulting what Christian history has produced. They, that's correct. They're, they aren't unless, um, unless what they do is they find their favorite tradition and mm-hmm. they, they, in finding their favorite tradition, which has been negotiated from a community Mm-hmm. They go with that community and then they X, they X off everybody else and brand them heretics, which happens very often. Mm-hmm. And that's a warning sign, mm-hmm. yep. you know? Yeah. Yes. Well, I think it's, it's one of those things, you know, unity and essentials. Um, and then beyond the essentials, we have charity for one another's viewpoints. There's, you know, a, a lot that can fit underneath an Orthodox tent. And there's certainly a lot that doesn't fit. We have to be willing to label some things as unorth- un- as unorthodox or heretical, um, and I, I think that that's part of safeguarding the people of God. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I certainly think so. I mean, it's um, yeah, no, it's 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 something to be to be looked at. I mean, listen, I'm not saying authorial intent is not possible, but I am saying that in uh, the things that are clear. I mean, we but David pointed back to he's a defender of common sense. And I think that's, that's exactly what we need to be. There are a lot of common sense things that don't require a commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are things that are not, and there's probably more, more often than we'd like to admit some of those things that we need to, we discuss. I mean, you look at this whole spirit baptism issue. I mean, you have people talk about what, what was this whole thing with, with baptism and the Holy Spirit? Is it secondary work of grace or is it not? And, even in the Pentecostal communities, they remain divided on that point. Mm-hmm. 
All of which, by the way, are following Gordon Fee's rules in his handbook for how to do hermeneutics. And, and Gordon Fee took different issues oh, oh, than his Pentecostal brothers and sisters who were using his book. So I never looked at Gordon Fee's book as a way to get us to everything. It just doesn't. No, and I don't think it's his intention to no, get us to, to where, everything. Where Gordon Fee falls short, Chris always has been a snake to go back to. Listen, I, I still – Most people won't know who he was just, just as well. I still yeah. think we have to maintain uh, a commitment, a baseline commitment to uh, I'm going to consider what was the author saying. What were they trying to communicate? Yeah, I think, I think, think if you don't consider that, then – you're Nobody, you're not being wholly responsible. I think, but I do believe that everybody um, wants that. Ideally, that's idealistic. Everybody wants that. That's an idealism. But at what point then? My question is: When I do hermeneutics classes and, and talk about historical grammar, at what point do you catch yourself saying, "Maybe I've I've overshot it, and I have too much now"? Because what if you go get all the history that you? Let's say you're trying to you're trying to get a point. Right. And and you make too much of the syntax where you make because this happens all the time in syntax. How much I, I have seen people trying to do faithful historical grammatical stuff, make way too much out of the arrangements of syntax or go way too far in suggesting uh, what the Old Testament might be echoing or go way too far in pulling up history, history that, uh, for instance, if someone's writing about my life in Franklin, Tennessee, and they say, and the governor at that time was um, so and so. And the city councilman of that time was so-and-so. I don't even know who my city councilman is. I just learned a couple of days ago who the governor was. None of that has had any direct or explicit bearing on my life and any of the decisions that I've made. But if someone's given a detailed account of my life and they make a big fuss about who was governor at that time and how that had bearing, maybe then they're, they've gone too far. And well, now they've, they've overshadowed no, not necessarily, because in that example, whether or not you know your governor's name does not change the fact that their policies impact your life. And, and, and unless they're specifically saying that they did and they could. And in my uh, – well, well, a practical application is I have been told since I was here that the police don't seem to enforce the speed limits and driving around with various people. Uh, we observe that to be correct. So – yeah. I just think it's interesting when I listen, you know, uh, I take my hat off to you, Chris, you're a, a million light years smarter than I am. I just don't, to me, sometimes it feels like the level of doubt thrown upon looking for something like authorial intent uh, is unhelpful because as a, as somebody who doesn't have formal training, that's, that's kind of your, that's your your uh, that's your your lifeline for finding out what does the Bible actually what, say. What you have to do when you're teaching the Word of God, what you have to do is to you cannot go beyond the level or the capacity of of where where people can understand in a human perspective. Uh, people people's understanding can be deepened by the working of the Holy Spirit. I've no doubt about that. But if you over-intellectualize, for instance, or do the kind of thing that Chris is talking about, a whole excess of information, extraneous information, mm -hmm. I mean, information that's extra, above and beyond, mm -hmm. and so on. See, I just used a word there that I never used when I was preaching, which is extraneous. You can't do that. You can explain something, but 
you you can't use terminology concepts uh you can't overload in, information overload all those things are distraction you i mean is there a place for those maybe in a seminary classroom or if you're doing something at theos mm-hmm. seminary or something like that mm-hmm. but not when you're in church on sunday morning because everybody has to understand if people don't understand what you're saying you are absolutely wasting your time and i used to say to one guy you know well, you can go on for an hour and a quarter if you want but mm-hmm. but nobody's listening after mm-hmm. the first half hour mm-hmm. and they're not listening to me after the first half hour why should they listen to anybody else you know mm-hmm. so those things are just i think that that goes back to common sense leadership in mm-hmm. in the, yeah. the local church yeah. in yeah, and, yeah. And, and and let me just say, I, I don't think I don't doubt the possibility of of authorial intent, but I think we need to be careful in being so certain that we have the authorial intent because we've done his because we've done critical work, which which I will tell you becomes every piet, pious, and zealous mm-hmm. uh, evangelical or Orthodox or Catholic all think they have the authorial intent, and they all disagree with each other, mm-hmm. and they all claim authorial intent. I don't think piety um, in thinking that you're right has ever got anybody closer to what the text means at all. I think maybe this, maybe the safest place to be is, you know, if you're, uh, if you're looking to relay revelation from a text, the safest place to be is probably, um, Hey, here's, here's what this likely means. Possibly means. Here's one option for what this means. If it means that, then here's the application that I can draw out of it for us. Yeah. Um, but, but the reality is, and you know, we've gone from personal Bible study to all of a sudden we're, we're a, a preacher standing on a pulpit. But uh, perhaps the three. Of That's us good. This is good. I, these are this, this is classroom discussion, man. I mean, this is what I love. This is. I think this is good. The, the reality is that as a as a as a communicator of God's word, in order to communicate with any level of uh, conviction, you're not going to go through the 37 different interpretations that all, all these people have of the passage. You've got to be able to preach what it what it says and what you feel right. confident in what it says. Which which I would which I would which I would point out initially from knee jerk reaction, you're coming from your tradition, right? Sure, but as long as your tradition is within the realm of orthodoxy, exactly. that's then all I'm saying. I'm I'm fine with that, and that's all I'm saying. That's ex- but that's I think that begs my point is that mm-hmm. like I would exactly listen it. to a Pentecostal preacher, you know, and I've actually recently had this, you know, in our church where we had a guy who's more more Pentecostal than I am, and his interpretation of spirit da- baptism is different than mine. I didn't get up and and disagree with him or or quote unquote correct, because, right. but what I did do is pastorally translate his language so that our church understands how that applies to us. But he's still on orthodox grounds. I'm fine with it. What I'm saying, though, is that largely speaking, we can we, question, we, we still agree on the fact, but the, we, have, we don't, hang on, we still agree on the fact that God gives the Holy Spirit. Correct. And in the correct. giving of the Holy Spirit uh, is, is we're led into a supernaturally empowered life. There's no disagreement on that. And and the only way we can know that with any level of confidence is by saying that's what we think the the author is intending to tell us. Now we yes, have differences right. on the intricacies of when, where, how, but correct. the overarching result is the same. So what was so then I would just say in in that point uh, with the when, where, and how 
You guys there? Did I cut no, out? I'm here. Is Jake is Jake still there? Well, I he seems to have been s- struck by God, probably because he's been visiting <laughs> that Pentecostal guy that came into his church strongly enough. <laughs> He'll come back. Uh, it's frozen in time, right there. You know, it's like uh, one of these television shows where we can say what we want now. We can say what we want. <laughs> I, I think that I think that um, you know, from a preaching perspective. Uh, we, from a personal perspective, you know, I read the scriptures, I ask God to speak to me and so on. From a preaching perspective, I'm now responsible for trying to teach other people. I I do my homework. I try to be open to uh, interpretations. Uh, We've lost Jake completely now. but Yeah, I think he'll he'll pop back up and he'll keep going. We'll trust, you know, once saved, always saved. So, We'll trust that he'll he'll uh, turn back up again in a moment. Yeah, but yeah, I yeah. think from a from a preaching perspective, um, we don't get up, do we, Christians, and say, "Well, there's ten interpretation of this passage." I mean, Correct. we know that we may not be a hundred percent certain. We know yeah. that there's somebody that may disagree in what this Correct. passage means, but we do the best of our ability. Yeah. Uh, we study. We we consider the various options. But then we get up and we simply say, you know, it, it, everything I say is as far as I can understand it, this is what this passage means. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's all we preach yeah. on the basis. Uh, 100%, yep. I, I would agree 100%. And I guess my point to Jake was like, that's kind of all you can do, right? I mean, you, you've, tr- you've tried to get what you believe was the intent, knowing that you may not have gotten the intent completely. And that's okay. Yes, I, I, and, and and if we claimed always to have an exclusive handle on the truth, we would be in deception. Yeah, and that's what I see a lot of the strict, uh, I'll just say it, MacArthurites doing. Boy, if you tell them that they don't have the authorial intent on a, 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 a specific verse, it's it's game over for you. In my experience, it's been that way. Even Well, I even say it, it's been that Wait, way amongst If, if you don't agree with their interpretation. Yeah. If you don't, which they, which to them is the authorial intent. This, it is, this is the authorial intent. Um, they may even go so far and say, this is inerrancy is my interpretation, you know, and that to well, me is deeply yeah, problematic. And, and that's wrong. I mean, I think we, we, we all need to come with an awareness that we haven't got a handle on 100% of the truth. And yep. we all need to be aware, we all need to be willing to learn from people that disagree with us if if our mind is closed if you come to me and say well you know uh, i i i appreciate what you're saying on that subject but i have a different perspective now i mean if you're joe blow that's contacting me off the internet and telling me i'm out to lunch i'm probably not going to give you the time of day but because because you're chris palmer uh and and i may think well gee i really have studied that out and i've even written on it in a book but um, because he, he says something, then at least I'm going to listen. Yeah. You know, maybe yep. I have something to learn. And I think that's the attitude that we have. And I think if we're all teachable, if the teachers are teachable, we ask people to be teachable, you know, in the end, even people who are preaching to, it's up to them to decide what yeah. to do with it. But I we think, need to be teachable. Yeah, and I think that authorial intent um, is a great thing. And ideal, idealistically, for what it's supposed to be, 
but I also think people weaponize it. And it's like, this is it. This is the intent. And, and there's zero room. There's zero room to get around it because they're claiming that, um, which is where it becomes very unhealthy uh, to, to say that. And, 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 and no need to continue to look or, or and then I think that sometimes um, dissuades, not dissuades, but dis, uh, doesn't leave any room for people to, to acknowledge what the Holy Spirit could be speaking from a verse that doesn't precisely uh, go hand in hand, doesn't precisely, uh, isn't exactly to the T what the author is saying, but does, certainly doesn't contradict it. I mean, if I'm reading a psalm about wisdom or a psalm about praise, and as I'm reading that, God is speaking to me about something particular in my life, who's to say that and someone comes along and says, no, you can't do that because that has nothing to do with our authority intent. It's like, to me, that's problematic. Well, the authorial intent is just not a way of saying what does the text mean, and yeah. we have to be humble. But the good news is I've been texted by Jake who says, now, you're Pentecostal. You all like this. He's had a power <laughs> surge. He's had a power <laughs> surge. Wait a minute. Which book am I going to put on this one? That one right there. That's it. It's because of the Benny Hinn book. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when he comes back, he's he's going to be full of all sorts of revelation. You know, I hope so. Bad weather out there in Los Angeles, so I don't know what it's got anything to do with that. But he he says that it, uh, the Wi-Fi is recovering, so we we just keep on. It's a good thing that you and me are paid to talk. Yeah, it's good. Uh, yeah. So we'll just carry on this conversation until he gets back. And and yeah, then he, why don't you? You know, I mean, I'm curious as I'm listening uh, to hear some of your uh, in 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 your academic. Uh, career at Durham, some of the, as good as the critical method was, as good as critical, you did a lot of critical exegesis, what was the downsides that, because we always, because we glorified in academia, but what are the problems with it that causes us to miss scripture? Uh, I'm just, I'm just, uh, not that I'm not paying attention to, but I'm getting bulletins from Los Angeles. (laughs) And it's something to do with the weather. Can y'all? What does y'all mean anyway? Can y'all? Can you? Can, I think that's Jake's way of saying. Can we carry the conversation into a discussion about the incarnation? Yeah. We we. Uh, what was the last point that you said though? I just asked. What were the um, it, the extremes of studying the text critically that you noticed at at Durham and other places you're a part of? Well, I, I think that uh, if you approach the Bible as an object of study where you determined that human intellect uh, is the highest standard, you've eaten of the fruit of the tree that you shouldn't have eaten of, you know, uh, God alone has the right to determine good and evil. And we have to submit to him in the understanding that the scripture is given to us and it's not non-negotiable. Yeah. So I think that those of us who agree that the scripture is non-negotiable and is in a, that God is it, it breathed out by, by God himself, um, we approach the scripture in, a, in fear and trembling. We want to get the right interpretation. We should approach it that way. And so therefore, you know, and I think this needs to be said, that 99% of the time, um, a resurrection. Is, <laughs> <laughs> resurrection is here. And, uh, but just stay quiet a minute, uh, Chief, until we finish our our cleanup. <laughs> um, 
that 99% of the time, Bible-believing Christians and teachers and preachers agree on the same thing and the fundamental things. Even with us and John MacArthur, you know, we would appre- there's nothing in the Nicene Creed or Athanasian Creed or anything yep. that we would disagree yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, and, and the trick of it is we need to know when not to magnify peripheral things, you know. Um, God can use people that are cessationists that don't even believe in the gifts of the yep. Spirit. Uh, he can use this. I mean, that's the funny thing about making fun of dispensationalists on the meme pages. God uses them in huge ways. And, and absolutely. So we can take issue with the theological perspective, but we don't want to be um, disparaging people. We don't want to be treating people badly or saying that, claiming that we're the only ones that have all the truth and so on. Anyway, uh, well, Bishop, uh, you're, you're back up. Uh, I don't know if. Uh, I hope you came to my defense long. a little bit, David. He sunk you while you're gone, man. I, I doubt it. I'm surprised you. Get, I, I I don't know if you guys are going to be friends after you watch the last five minutes of this podcast. I everything <laughs> I know I've learned from him. You're a very naughty man, Chris Palmer. Wait, you better get us on to the incarnation. I haven't got yeah. my copy of the book with me here in Nashville, unfortunately. Although I have read it more than once. The wait, uh, but Chris, did you want to say anything to me in my passionate pursuit of truth? I think if I can remember where you're at, you were talking about if you get up and you say, um, remind me of that part you're at. No, I was just talking about how broadly speaking, we, we agree on what a text is saying, even if okay, we you were talking about, yeah, you were talking about two guys. Yeah. yeah, two guys come up and, and they talk about the differences of the spirit in, in a certain particularity. And you generally agreed on something, correct? Um which is which I, I agree on. I mean, I think we can have unity, but I would say if we brought it back to authorial intent, um, which of you have it, him or you? It, it depends on the thing that we're talking about, and I, I am, a, I'm with you on the tradition thing. I'm just saying to you that what has what has begun as hey, let's help people learn how to read the Bible better, has turned into a complete. And and <laughs> totally unhelpful mess. No, it hasn't. This is this. I think is. I think this is really helpful because it. I don't think this is a mess. I think this is to me a good discussion to have because it's where if we were in a classroom right now, this is how it goes. In a, at least in my seminary classrooms uh, where I've taught in a respective institution, these conversations, and I have always walked away like, man, I, that conversation really got me thinking. Um, maybe I don't have a, a one, two, three point, but I've, these are people who have really thought about these issues. Um, maybe it's not explicitly helpful, but I used to, I know for example, Jake, uh, when I was getting my master's, I used to never miss class because it was my favorite part of the week. Cause these are the kinds of conversations that we amicably had. And we realized we were all agreeing on the same points. We, no, nobody in here is doubting the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, infallibility, inerrancy, all those things of Scripture, or any points in the Nicene Creed, or the way that we do hermeneutics. And nobody's vouching for a post-modernity. But I think we're, we're flipping it back on the critical method and saying, hey, especially with David saying, he just said it's eating. it can be eating from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Is to, mm-hmm. is that, I think that's how he phrased it. Too much of that, because I will say, I have watched Pentecostals who the text has transformed in tremendous waves get into academia 
and lose that part of the heritage and they become so dogmatic and so matter of fact and right in their own mind, they're not helpful to anybody, but they're right. And that's all that's important. And that is terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm not I, saying that's I, what you're saying, but I'm, I, I've taken this discussion a little further. But Yeah. I, I think in, in some ways we're, we're splitting hairs. At, at the end of the day, if I'm going to read a passage like what we read in Matthew 10, and I'm going to preach that, you know, or I'm going to go to my small group and, and and share my insights from it. I'm going to glean from all the context that's there, what Jesus is saying. And if I have a basic knowledge as to why Matthew wrote his gospel, I'm going to use that yep. to help apply it. Th- that is, that, that is to me a version of getting at authorial intent. Now the application is broad. What? How can I apply this to us? There's a lot of different ways I can apply it. So I, okay, I think so if you if you and I are going to step up onto a platform and talk about this passage, we're probably going to say really similar things. And you know, unless it's the book, unless it's the book of Revelation, and then we have ourselves. <laughs> <we> <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but you understand what I'm saying, and yep. I'm not. You don't need to be uh, totally dogmatic about your view. Um, you can have openness, but you're no, still using think... you're still using some kind of critical method to ar- arrive at what the text is saying, and then partnering with the Holy Spirit and what's going on in your community in terms of bringing application. But I would say that I don't think it's always necessary to. We I think we agreed in the beginning. It's not always necessary to use critical method to to arrive at meaning from scripture. I mean, I know a pastor in Italy who found the Bible in a trash can and got the message of salvation right. You know, it's like, and came to know Jesus. Um, again, uh, it's just, I think it's a balance. I think we, I think we all agree at this, uh, what we're trying to say here. We all agree. I mean, the Bible is clear enough. This persecuted scripture. Absolutely. It, it mm-hmm. says what it means. It means what it says. And I think we're willing to die that hill. No it doubt. It says I just, what it means and it means what it says. Did I yes. just sound like a fundamentalist there? I think I did. I really did, bro. Hey, wait, no, stop. Okay, let's move on from there. That's perfect. That's great. <laughs> we, we got we got exactly to where we needed to be. Uh, great. Okay, let's talk about the incarnation. Unless um, you disagree. Yeah, I'm not going to open that door, but go ahead. Yeah, okay. No, I, I agree with that. I, I think I was it says say, it. somebody might the guy that said that the guy that usually says it means what it says. I usually disagree with that guy now, and he says it means what it says. So who's right and who's wrong? I'm just <laughs> <saying that. laughs> um, yeah. All that to say, gosh, we're going to give this another crack next week as well, and see if we can help people read the Bible in 2023. All that to I say, I think a big. I think you need a mess of a conversation, Jake, in one of these podcasts to just confuse everybody, keep them coming back. Well, we certainly got them baited. But I, I, I think, um, well, maybe we'll come back to it. But hopefully in this conversation, they've been able to deduce some general good principles for when you're reading the scripture. Don't have to sort it out. Don't import your meaning and label it calling, you know, being led by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's right. my general principle, number one. Okay, so um, let's talk about Incarnation Chapter 5. I love this chapter. Uh, he's talking about um, all of the stages of Christ's life and and how he acts as the mediator between God and man um, uh, in those different stages. So he does birth, he does baptism, he does life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Certainly talked about uh, some things that I've never thought about before. Um, and by the way, 
I'd be really curious. I've actually thought this multiple times uh, over the last several months. I'd be really cur- curious what what John C. Clark's method for interpreting scripture is. Um, he has a, he has a little dig towards the end of the book at the historical grammatical method, if I remember um, oh, cor- correctly. Good, he must he must be a good scholar then. <laughs> <laughs> but well, it, well, we, we can come back to that. But. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, let me throw it to you guys. Any initial impressions or insights? I would say that I, I would say from what I've read, uh, re, what I remember of this book, um, it seems his his method is more theological, identifying theological themes and pulling mm-hmm. those together, which mm-hmm. I think is a really good way of getting at scripture. By the way, yeah, I agree. Um, he's he, he's staying. I like that he's staying within the text and he's not going outside the text trying to find. Uh, not that you can't do that, but he's he's within the text. He's in the text. He's not trying to pull lots of other stuff around from outside the text. Although he does lean on his, well, he seems to be reformed to me because he, you know, he, he quotes reformed people left and right. Yeah. And so he's yeah, certainly operating within his tradition as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Uh, David, why don't you kick us off? You don't have your book with you, yeah, but anything stands out to you? My, the problem I've got is that I forgot to bring the book with me. Uh, I had marked several passages in it. Um, the chapter as a whole, a lot of it is kind of a restatement of things that they've said in the first four chapters, but he did have some, some good takeaway points. Unfortunately, my memory is not good enough to remember what they were because I don't have the highlighted book with me. So I have to apologize. I think it might be more productive if you had some, you often highlight the same lines Mm -hmm. that I do, Jake, if you've got Mm -hmm. some that are highlighted, that will help my memory. Yeah, I have a lot highlighted um and so i can bring some of that up chris anything you want to say while i'm grabbing a quote um grab a quote and let's talk about it i'm pulling mind up right now i'm trying to be really silent here while i type uh to remind myself (laughs) that was feedback i gave from last time chris was with us everybody is his little just pitter pattering of his fingers upon his keyboard uh was was incredibly loud um I think one of the things that I really appreciated about this chapter is how um, w- when we're looking at the totality of Christ's vicarious life, including all those different stages I mentioned a moment ago, um, how that undergirds um, a substitutionary understanding of his death so strongly. I really appreciated that. Um Obviously, that wasn't their primary aim in this chapter, but it does seem like that was one thing that they were trying to underscore. Um, in if Christ, if if the totality of his life was vicarious, then certainly his death was vicarious, and to remove any kind of substitutionary uh, element as a major reason for him going to the cross, um, therefore, would be totally nonsensical. And I point that out because that still seems to be a pretty common. Um, theme in deconstructing circles, viewing Christ's uh, substitution on the cross as morally reprehensible from the father's perspective right. to send yeah. the son. So I really appreciated them pointing that out. Um, and I thought it was a brilliant case. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I certainly, there, there's some, let me give a um, quote here that I have. Then what sort of death did Christ die at mm-hmm. Golgotha, his was a vicarious death, as you're mm-hmm. saying, Jake, undertaken in our place and on our behalf. This means he died the death to which sinners are subject, physical and spiritual. 
Christ suffered physical death in the separation of his soul from his body, the decreational judgment whereby God pulls apart what he put together and when he breathed life into the man he formed from the dust of the ground, making him a living creature. More startling still, Christ suffered spiritual death in the form of excruciating estrangement with a Trinitarian fellowship as it is heard in his death to cry, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? Hmm. David, your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's Christ identified from his baptism onward. He identified with us. He took on our sinful nature, or at least he took on the flesh that we live in, our human nature, and yet in it, he did not sin. Uh, and that in, in, you know, what Christ didn't assume or take on or enter into you know, he entered into it in order to bring victory for us in that same place. So Christ had to fight through all the temptations yet without sin. And in order to bring us who live that same fleshly human life, um, but with sin, how does he bring us into the beginning of his victory? It's only through coming and defeating the devil on his own ground, so to speak. Uh, and I think there's and, and, and I think that, you know, because liberalism has always said, well, Jesus really is a moral example because they can't believe he's God. They, he's just an example. But an example doesn't do anything for anybody mm -hmm. um, other than disappoint a, a person we follow will just disappoint us at some point or another. <clears throat> but it doesn't have any power. Mm -hmm. But Jesus uh, destroyed the power of the devil. Uh, through living this sinless life from beginning to end. Uh, and it said he, God made him sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The idea being that even in this life, we can begin to enter into something of who Christ mm -hmm. is. We enter into his life. The life I la now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I die, I've been crucified with Christ. The old man is gone. The new man has come. Uh, we're a new creation. Um, and so uh, I it's not that I have to perfect myself or improve myself or whatever. I can't do that. I cast myself in the mercy of God. I trust Christ um, for the forgiveness of sins. And then miraculously, God pulls me into a whole different world. And in that world, it's a two stage process in the first stage of it. I, I am, as Luther said, justified, I'm a sinner, justified yet a sinner. You know, I've, I've got issues in my life I'm still fighting, but for the first time I have power to fight back. That's the life we now live. That's the life of Christ within us. But one day we'll be issued fully into the life of Christ, where we live his perfect life in communion with him. And we know that one of the ways that the Apostle Paul speaks about being a Christian is the phrase in Christ. He uses it dozens of times mm -hmm. for a reason. We're in Christ. We're not in Adam anymore. In Adam is the life I live. Now, I used to live before I came to know Jesus. Now I'm translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into a new life. And in this new life, I have power to fight back against the hold of sin. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about those kind of things. Um, and people don't realize that if you throw the, you know, what we call the substitutionary penal atonement out where the judgment of God comes up, up, up upon his son, 
if you throw that out, we lose all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, we, 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 he had to fight through that. He had to take the punishment for our sin mm-hmm. in order for us to enter into the righteousness of God and the new life in Christ, which is such a wonderful thing that we have. One of the things they point out that I thought was really helpful in that regard is is taking pains to acknowledge that uh, the scripture they quote many times throughout the book in terms of um, Jesus being the mediator between God and man, not just from God to man. And I think what I hear uh, in uh, in the you know the more liberal side of things theologically is is an emphasis on on who God is to us in Jesus Christ. And he's revealing the Father, and he's showing us God, which absolutely he is. But also, uh, it's not just from God to man. It's between God and man. So it's there, there's a bidirectional thing happening there. And that's where the vicarious aspect comes in, that Jesus is also uh, representing us to the Father. Um, yes, and- he, he, ever, he ever lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews mm-hmm. says. Mm-hmm. Uh, so well, let's talk about that then, because that's a great point. I, I, I have failed to think deeply about the 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 bearing of the incarnation, you know, upon Christ ascended, um, and what specific role Christ plays incarnate as the ascended one. Um, I thought that was brilliant. I think it was John Calvin they quoted where they talked about how um, in Christ we've already entered into the kingdom. Um, which is an obvious thing, but it's, it's just beautiful when you think about it in, in a real sense. Well, Paul said he seated us in heavenly places. And uh, we look at our imperfect life and we think, my goodness, how can that be? But it, it's true. Um, and it's evidenced by the fact we have the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. And we should never underestimate what God has done for us in Christ and giving us this new life. Thank God it's not just, you know, people telling me what to do. I, I think one of the greatest things, one of the greatest pitfalls in evangelical preaching is where we make it clear to people they're justified by faith through the grace of God. But then we leave open the implication that you've got to somehow earn your sanctification or work it out, you know, uh, make it happen yourself. And that just reduces the Christian life to moralism and therefore to failure because it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. I need to sanctification is a gift of grace. Much justification is I need the power of the Holy Spirit every day anew within me in order to, to live out the life of Christ. Um, it's Christ living in me. It's not me trying to make myself like Jesus. I can't mm-hmm. do that. And I think talk- there are lots of evangelical churches where, People have forgotten that and then they get discouraged and, you know, and, and, and then we get legalistic, you know, and we, you know, we reduce the demands of the gospel the way the Pharisees did to a few things that we don't do. And then we look down on people that aren't doing them and, and we've forgotten the grace of God. We've forgotten and we're living a diminished life, an impoverished Christian life. I think they make a really good job of talking about we actually, Christ came to live and share in our lives so that we could come to share it in his life. That's what the Christian life is. It's living in the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's not living our own life Mm -hmm. with a New Year's resolution. 
With the New Year's resolution, that's funny. Well, it's New Year's, so that seems like a timely, very timely application. I love their point about um, baptism and uh, how how significant of a role. They said the baptism of Christ was a vicarious baptism in which he rendered authentic confession and repentance of sin for us as one of us. This was no perfunctory, fun word, cursory ritual our Lord performed to initiate his march to Golgotha. In fact, Jordan has as much to do with our salvation as Golgotha and is inextricable from it. So these two elements of the baptism of Christ, one at the cross, but one in the waters of the Jordan River, and in that baptism he was... uh, vicariously taking our place of repentance and confession. That's kind of a uh, confronting thought that Christ is confessing and repenting as one who had no sin. Either one of you want to make some meaning of that? I'll let David go on this one. Then I'll, I'll piggyback off him. (laughs) Well, I don't think, uh, I mean, Christ in his baptism took our place. Uh, He didn't have personal sin to confess or repent of. Mm -hmm. But he allowed, he brought himself into a place which he knew was coming, where the Father would look on him as if he represented sinful humanity and place our judgment upon him in order that from now on, when the father looked at us, he would see only his perfect son. And uh, that is the incredible thing that happened mm-hmm. on our behalf. Yeah, they go on to say, so, you know, when discussing the self-presentation of Christ for baptism at both Jordan and Golgotha, we must bear in mind that baptism is a transliteration of the Greek word. I don't know, Chris, what is the Greek word? Baptizo. Baptizo, uh, which means immersion or submersion. So the baptism of Christ at the Jordan was a sign and seal of his being immersed into the reality of confession and repentance of sin, offering for us the perfect, I love this, offering for us the perfect human response to our existence east of Eden. Likewise, the baptism of Christ at Golgotha was a sign of us being immersed into the reality of divine judgment, bringing to completion for us God's condemnation of sin and the very flesh our Lord assumed from us, referencing Romans 8.3. So in those two baptisms, one, you have Christ's immersion into the perfect human response to sin, which is repentance and confession. And then at the cross, you have God's perfect response of judgment of our sin, which is death. So the justice of God is upheld which I think is what Romans 8, 3 is, is talking about. But at the same time, the perfect faithfulness of man is upheld in the sense of uh, confession and repentance on our behalf. Is that kind of what the, what he's getting at? Seems yeah, to me I, anyway. I, I think he's talking about Christ coming in this world to take upon himself our sinfulness and, uh, and our judgment. Um, and... Uh, because he doesn't have to repent for his own sin because he is sinless. 
but he voluntarily takes our punishment so that the punishment due to us comes on Christ uh, and then it's done and cry and God indicates his approval. I think this comes out in the chapter. Um, God, so to speak, redeems the cross through the resurrection. He brings, he, he places his approval on the sacrifice of Christ and accepts it. Uh, and now we are accepted in Christ. Yep. Okay. Um, let me throw out one more and then we can uh, close the conversation because we've certainly been at it for a while today. <laughs> well, Chris and I have. You you played hooky for a while. I, I popped out for a minute. <laughs> I don't know what happened. There's, some, there's been a bunch of storms here in LA and so they're having some outages. Um, we find the notion that Christ died for sinners so they do not need to die themselves to be utterly fallacious. Such a notion does not take seriously the justice of God, the direness of our fallen predicament, or the divinely intended effect of Christ's death within the believers. In truth, then, Christ died for sinners so that in and with him they too could die. That is our only hope, for the design of our Lord's death is not to forgive sin in the abstract, but to judge and destroy sin in its concrete human expression in the lives of sinners. Man. Yeah, and that's why we're baptized into the death of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, that we, uh, it, it's not just that we can say, oh, well, Jesus has paid the price for us. Now we can go on. We get a free pass to heaven mm -hmm. uh, or fire insurance or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's that we, we have to enter into that death with Christ. And Which, in that death with Christ means that uh, we are, 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 are going to walk away from putting ourselves at the center of our life and we're going to live for yeah. him. Which I think is very timely for the moment that we're living in. Because when we consider Christ, what this is telling us is that um, to put on Christ and see how he was sacrificed for our sins would, would really bring us and confront us with the problem of sin which you don't see too often, especially in 24th century. Uh, the appearance of Christianity would oftentimes it's, well, I just want to try Jesus for, to be a better me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Where the very first, what I was taught at least, revelation that you have that the Holy Spirit gives to you is that the reason you need Jesus, well, you need Jesus, and that's because you're a sinner. Mm -hmm. There's a sin problem that you have. Um and calling brings you face to face with that. When when there is that initial call by God, God calls you to be saved. It's not just us being deciding we're going to respond to an altar call, but we have that effective call. I believe it's the reform circles call that, which I believe very much in that effective call is that God is calling you to be saved. Well, in that call, He's convicting you of of sin, and then convicting you not only of your sin, but that um, giving you the faith to believe that Christ can carry that sin for you and has carried that sin for you on Calvary and on the cross. Um, and to enter into union with Christ through your faith. Okay. Through the grace that he's given to you. So it's dealing with your sin through, through the cross, which brings you into Christ, which is profound in every sense of the word. I am concerned and do believe that if, if 
converts, quote, true converts have this. Individuals that don't aren't confronted by sin and, quote, unquote, turn to Jesus apart from having to deal with the fact that they're sin or don't see this work of Christ. It's only time time will tell. Um, and you'll see that it's, it won't last. And it never mm-hmm. does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a phase. Is there something in there as well? I mean, when you talking about the you know the notion that Christ died for us and so we ourselves don't need to die does he mean that surely obviously he doesn't mean that there are Christians walking around who are thinking that they don't need to physically die he means that in the metaphorical sense that we don't need to suffer is is that what you guys are gathering I'm not sure I think death death to sin is death to sin whatever suffering it may or may not involve but it is uh allowing God to be Lord of of our lives so that we're no longer doing what we want to do and living a self-centered life, but we're living for Christ and carrying our cross. That's, that's what death to sin and life to God means. I'd like to say what he means, but unless we have the author, I'm not sure we can determine the author. I'm I find it a lot easier to understand what most parts of the Bible say than what a lot of theologians say. Well, that, <laughs> that's very true. David, that's so true, David. It's so true. It's very true. I find it easier to understand the Bible than I do even sitting here across from Chris. I can't make heads or tails of what he's talking about. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, I don't even know what I'm talking about half the time, to be honest well, with you. I just Jake, you and I are the world's uh, <laughs> communicators. That's why Sorry, our podcast yeah. is called Good Theology my Now. My wife and she'll tell you that's not <laughs> yeah. the case. Well, as soon as the podcast was called Good Theology, I they're gonna this section's getting cut off. They're gonna leave me out of this one. <laughs> it's called Good Theology for this episode. It's <laughs> <laughs> sure. uh, sure. great. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, I think that is enough for today. I'm tired. I'm sure you guys Two are hours, tired. Two hours, man. I, 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 at, at about 90 minutes, my brain just clunks Brain out, starts but, melting. You know, he, he's tired. He's younger, than Chris, than either of us, considerably younger than me. And it's still only half past three in Los yeah. Angeles, half past five here. Yeah. The, yeah. The, so, there's a couple of differences here. Number one, I'm a senior pastor. My job is harder than both of yours. Num- <laughs> n- number two, number two. I have I have uh, a wife and young children, and Chris is just a single man, freewheeling and dealing, doing whatever the heck he wants, whenever he wants. And he 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 lives in Nathan Finocchio's orbit, which means that, like, that do they even work? Harder. Do they even work? What I you know, and you it know, was, he, well, you know what? I tell you what, it's different from being a senior pastor. Senior pastor just works. You know, we know I was a senior pastor. We only work Sundays. <laughs> Oh I'm joking. God! I'm joking. I'm joking, dude. Uh, I used to get that all the time, Jake. Okay, I used to oh, hate it's that. The worst. So. The worst. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got mad respect for you, both of you, and I love you big time. And thank you guys so much for joining us today. I will say, you're Jake. You're a heck of a theological thinker, man. I I give you props, bro. I'm doing Seriously. my best, man. I'm just I'm trying to shepherd people the best I can, and I'm uh, you know always. That's why I have us. a hard time believing that David Campbell taught you everything you know. 
David Campbell did not teach me. <laughs> David Campbell is my is my litmus test for fifty percent of my sermons. I send it to him, and if I get the thumbs up, I'm like, okay, cool, I'm on, I'm on solid ground. Um, but thank you guys also for tuning in. We appreciate it, and uh, hey, thank you so much for journeying with us on this podcast. We're excited about the future this year. Be hugely helpful to us if you liked and subscribed, even if you went over to our YouTube channel as well, uh, which I believe should be updated to the name Good Theology. You can subscribe to that. That is a huge help to us as we look to continue to grow this year. Chris and David, God bless you guys. Love you. Over and out. Bye, everybody.